At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 264th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Nature doesn't waste energy, and by using natural cycles to work in our favor, we can harvest both plants and fish. Let us teach you how. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we're talking to Anne B. Clay about microbial roots of life and health. Anne is a biologist and avid gardener whose wide-ranging interests have led her into watershed restoration, environmental planning, and public health. She uses her broad background and endless fascination with the natural world to investigate and write about people and their environments. Anne is also a rampant plant whisperer, coaxing plants into rambunctious growth or nursing them back from the edge of death. She uses her garden, a nearby traffic circle, and a sidewalk planting strip as places to watch plants, people, and their interactions. She co-wrote The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health, with her husband, David Montgomery, who was our guest on episode 259. Welcome to the show today, Anne. Glad to be here, Greg. Thank you. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. I'd say that in some ways, like most of us, there's always sort of something about your childhood that sort of mm. sticks with you throughout life. Yep. And for me, I, as a little kid, was always way preferred being outdoors to indoors. Mm-hmm. And we, we didn't grow up out in the country or on a huge amount of acreage or anything like that. It was a pretty average suburban neighborhood in the Denver area, in Littleton, actually. Uh-huh. There was a series of small sort of rock garden type things that my parents had developed and and planted shortly after the house was built. And I have one of my most vivid memories was as a little girl and kind of wandering around. And I I, I was probably four years old or so, so Uh not even in school. And it was early June, and I came across this flower that towered over my head, Uh and I desperately wanted to get my nose into it. Mm. And that flower happened to be a super fragrant purple iris. Oh, wow. And I remember sticking almost my whole face into that flower and thinking, oh, my God, what is this thing? I love this thing. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's my earliest memory of sort of falling in love with, plants. Uh-huh. And as t- time went on, I neither of my parents were big-time gardeners. I didn't have any sort of delphinium doting kind of an aunt that would, you know, take me out to some grand estate or anything. I just liked plants and I liked gardens. And it wasn't until many, many years later, sometime uh, in my 30s, that my husband and I, by this time we had moved to Seattle, where we still live, mm-hmm. that we bought a house And my one thing that I really, really, really wanted when we were able to buy a place was space for a garden. Mm, Because I had had dipped into gardening throughout being in college and graduate school and everything. But I was always renting and always moving like every six or nine months. I never really literally could put roots down. Right. So when we got our place here, 
we decided to do something kind of radical, and that was that the, our lot is situated such that the house is all the way over on one side of the lot, and that leaves us with a very large side yard oh, wow. on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there was, a few, there was a few scattered plants on our place. We talk about this in the book, The Hidden Half of Nature, that we wrote. It was Norwegians who built this house, and Norwegians, at least in Seattle at that time when they built the house, they were not really gardeners. And anything that blew in on the wind and the rain took root, it grew, and nothing was in the right place. And Mm. they were not appealing plants in any sort of sense of the word. So we demolished, actually, everything on the lot except the house. So all that, Uh yeah, pulled, pulled the ratty lawn off the mulberry tree that had been topped no less than 49 times, mm-hmm. a holly tree that was about to eat us up, it, all of these things. And so this was my path to really becoming a gardener and cutting my teeth on gardening and figuring out things about plants and the soil. And it eventually culminated in the book that I just mentioned, The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. And that book is a, is a mix of this story about our garden with history and science that tells, tells basically the, the, the story of our tangled relationship with the microbial world, mm. both mm-hmm. in the soil and in our own bodies. And that, that I would say, is, is sort of where, where I'm at now in my life. The book has been out just a little over two years, and it still continues to amaze me how little we know mm-hmm. about fundamentally vital and important parts of our body as well as the plant's green body and the soil. Yeah. So that, that's how I got here. Wow. So you mentioned these microbes, and what I want to know for our listeners is why are they so important? <laughs> yeah. These are the smallest creatures on Earth. We cannot see them. They are invisible. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it very hard to to cuddle up to them and to sort of grok them, if you remember that verb from the science science fiction novel of Heinlein. Grok is to, like, fully understand and grasp something. And we just do not get that with the microbial world. And what they do is they sort of specialized. Microbes or bacteria in particular are very interesting. They can live off of just about anything, Mm -hmm. off of carbohydrates, off of sulfur, off of weird metals. They can live in water that's boiling hot, you know, deep, deep down in Mm -hmm. the ocean floor. They can live up in the atmosphere. And they're very facile. They're very adaptable. And like every living thing on this planet, they need things to eat, and they're trying to reproduce. And so they have, through the course of Earth's history and evolution, they have hooked up with actually every living organism on this planet is hauling around a crew of microbes in and on their bodies, whether you're a starfish, a dog, a person, an amoeba, Mm -hmm. a redwood tree, whatever. We each have our microbial crew with us. And it's what's so astonishing is that for so long, we thought that our well-being and health, as well as that of every other, other living organism, depended on the absence of microbes right. rather than their presence. And I think that's remarkable because it's 2017, and we have made huge scientific breakthroughs in many, many areas, and yet the microbiome field is in some ways very much still in its infancy in terms of what we're learning about the importance and significance of these other life forms Mm -hmm. to our own well-being and that of our gardens and our farms and our soil. Mm -hmm. So you used a word, and then I just want to kind of call it out. It's microbiome. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah. So the microbiome, it's, it's actually pretty simple. It's the community of microorganisms, so that includes bacteria, viruses, these bacteria-like organisms called archaea. It includes yeast, fungi, single-celled organisms without a cell nucleus that live in communities. And these communities of microbes, Mm -hmm. our microbiome, it lives 
on the surface of things. So it lives, for example, on our skin. It lives right. on the leaf of a plant. Mm-hmm. can live on the outside of a root. But members of our microbiome also live inside of us and inside of plants. So for the plant world, they're living inside of a plant's roots and stems ah. and shoots. Mm-hmm. And they are living in us. And the, the highest density of the human microbiome, both in terms of numbers and diversity, is in our the lowermost part of our digestive tract, in our colon. Mm-hmm. And the counterpart to that in the botanical world is the root system. Ah. And in fact, it's estimated that, you know, we often think of places like the Amazon as as being most diverse and, and dense with life. Mm-hmm. But it turns out on a per unit basis, the root system of a plant, I would say growing in healthy soil, right. is where in fact we find most of most of the life on our planet is congregated around the roots of plants. Curious, really? Yeah. Wow. Right. And again, I'll, I'll say this isn't the roots of plants, you know, growing in, in, in a soil that's been treated with a lot of toxins and chemicals. Right. This would be plants growing in a domesticated, cultivated setting, like in a farm or a garden, mm-hmm. you know, in, in settings where we're not using a lot of agrochemicals or toxins right. or, or other products. And in native plant communities, you could go measure stuff that's going on in, say, a forest soil or mm-hmm. a grassland soil, right. and you would find high-density diversity of life around the root systems, right. much more so than the above-ground parts of a plant. Got it. Well, then it makes perfect sense because there's so many more places for it to hide and be nurtured. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, so does the rhizosphere have something to do with this arena as well? Yes. So the rhizosphere is a, is a halo-like area that surrounds the root system of a plant. Mm. And if you picture a root system, mm-hmm. there's all of these major roots that we can easily see with our eyes. And, and as you go further out in the root system, eventually you'll get out to the teeny tiny root hairs, right? Mm-hmm. If you were to take a pencil, and if you were able to, in 3D, draw an outline around each and every root hair of a plant all around the entire root system, that would be its rhizosphere. And the rhizosphere extends anywhere from a couple of millimeters, maybe out to as much as a centimeter from, wow. a, from a root or a root hair. And it is a very, very active, active area. In the book, in The Hidden Half of Nature, we call the rhizosphere a biological bazaar because oh, there nice. are... nice. Yeah. Yeah, there are a ton of products mm-hmm. available in that bazaar. The plant is making some of these products. The root microbiome is making some of these products. And there are exchanges and trades going on ceaselessly. <laughs> right. Endlessly down there in the rhizosphere. It is busier than, you know, than Times Square. It's busier than any of these, you know, mm-hmm. ancient, ancient bazaars that we often uh, might picture, say, from the, the Middle East or something where you have traders and and uh, bringing wares in from all over the place to trade with other with other people. The rhizosphere, all that stuff pales in comparison to what's going on in a well-functioning um, rhizosphere. Rhizosphere, wow. So th- there's these interactions going on between the plant, the r- plant roots, and the m- microbes. Is there not? Yeah. Yes. So tell tons us about of, that. Tons of interactions. Yeah. Yeah. So what? How this all works, this is, and when, I, when I'm talking about this, people will go, oh, this is why we've been so wrong about what the microbial world is up to. So here's how it, it, it basically works. I mean, a plant's green body is absolutely amazing with all of the things that it can do because mm-hmm. it's got all of this leafy stuff above ground, and it's got a monopoly on sunlight, and mm-hmm. it can convert that sun's energy into endless carbohydrates, some of which it uses itself to build its green body, but up to, it's, there's estimates of up to around 40% of the carbohydrates produced through photosynthesis are turned into compounds called exudates. And these exudates mm. are not directly for the plant. They shunt all these exudates 
down to their roots, and then they release these exudates out of their roots into the rhizosphere, into all the into the soil mm-hmm. surrounding all of these roots. Now, why would a plant be doing that? You know, that's like I mean, forty percent of your body's energy producing things that you're just kind of leaking out of your root system. That's mm-hmm. like any one of us going and sort of putting the pay, part of our paycheck on the corner, like anyone right. can have this. Yeah. So plants are doing this. Plants are very wily and very strategic in their own way. And they are doing this. They are, with these exudates, they are recruiting and retaining legions of microbes to come mm. into that rhizosphere and to start and and where this is all going is it de- it's developing a symbiotic relationship right. with all different kinds of microbes in the soil. So what's what are in these exudates? It's you know sugary carbohydrates. Uh-huh. It's proteins. It's various kind of nutrients that microbes are not getting in the soil. Mm-hmm. Right? There's there's carbohydrates that find their way into the soil, those are all made by the plant's green body. You know, the fungus and bacteria and other things down there, they rely on that plant for carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are a great energy source. It's a, right. it's a sugar. I mean, our bodies run on carbohydrates as well. And so a plant starts releasing these exudates and the bacteria come running like dogs to a bone, you know, or more like a dish of, you know, soup or something, and they start slurping this stuff up, these exudates. And the bacteria, in, in turn, just like every organism, they are, are taking this in and they have waste products. Mm-hmm. And I think we need a really different word f- for, for waste product because they excrete metabolites after they're done consuming these carbohydrates. Right. And some of these metabolites turn out to be things that are hugely beneficial to a plant. Fertilizers. Uh, bacteria can make plant growth promoting hormones. Mm-hmm. So here's this plant that is relying on bacteria living around its roots mm-hmm. to make growth hormones. So it becomes this cycle of the plant supplying things to its root microbiome. The root microbiome transforms them into, you know, all, it's sort of like the, the goose that laid the golden egg in a way, but it's the bacteria laying the golden metabolites right. that plant can take back up. In another case, fungi, I'm sure your listeners on this podcast have heard of mycorrhizal fungi. So oh, these yes. are these are right. Yeah. So when you if you were able to see the amount of fungi again in a healthy soil that are swathing and coating a plant root, it would it would blow all of our minds. So here they are one end one end firmly attached to the root, and, and in some cases inside of the root. The other end of that hyphae is off out in the soil somewhere beyond the reach of the plant's roots, mining minerals mm. out of soil particles and rocks, mm-hmm. minerals like iron and zinc and all of these trace minerals that plants need in, in small, small quantities, but they nevertheless must have them. So the fungi is out there doing its nutrient mining, and it transports all that stuff back to the plant root. And guess what the fungi likes to eat, too? They, they live off of carbohydrates. Right. So they're, they're, it's this you know, nutritional highway that fungi have built with the botanical world. Mm-hmm. So really, the carbohydrates are bait to get the microbes in. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's to not only get them in, but keep them there. Yeah. Because just like any of us, you know, if we show up to work and there's there's free food, uh huh. <laughs> we'll we'll keep coming to we'll keep coming to work partly. Or if we knew it was like okay, every third Monday donuts. Right. You know, as that time rolls around, the expectation is, oh yeah, more free donuts. Mm-hmm. So it as soon as you cut the donuts off, you know, well, that third Monday isn't so fun anymore. Right. And, and likewise <laughs> in the soil, the minute the microbes stop getting these exudates, they're going to, they need to eat. Right. Right? So, so they're going to go off, one, you know, several things are going to happen. Their population is going to decline because mm-hmm. they're being starved, or they're going to go off and try and find, you know, food somewhere else. You know, that's pretty much the two, the two options when, when exudate, when plant exudates drop off. Yeah. 
So all this is pointing to creating a healthy soil uh, so that the plants can thrive, so that the microbes can thrive. So can you kind of point us in the direction of what is healthy soil? We all hear about human health, and you hear about soil health. And when you ask the question, what makes for a healthy person, one definition at least is, you know, the absence of disease and infirmity, and then tagged on to that is also a body that is, can, can thrive and does thrive. Mm -hmm. And it's really no different for the botanical world. Soil health translates directly to the health of the plant itself. And the soil, soil health itself, I mean, it's becoming somewhat of, of a buzzword, and it is so closely linked to plant health that you, the, mm -hmm. the two are just inseparable. But soil health, to me, and there's, there's not firm definitions of this because it's, it's sort of a concept that uh, people in agronomy and horticulture and anyone involved in plant science, I think, is still trying to get their arms around. But I will say, if, if there was a biomarker for soil health, the way that, say, we use blood pressure and oh, right. temperature as mm -hmm. somewhat like biomarkers for our health, it would be to have robust populations of beneficial microorganisms in the soil. Mm -hmm. And the way that you get there is by having also soils that are rich in carbon and carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And so that, that means soil rich in organic matter. matter. Because not only do these, are these, do these microbes eat sort of the ready-made carbohydrates, that come out as, as exudates, mm -hmm. we all know that the microbial world is also breaking down every dead part of a plant that makes its way into or on the soil. Right. So those are the, those are the two sort of main sources of carbon for the microbial world. So if you've got a lot of carbon, chances are you've got really nice, robust, uh, populations of microbes, most of which are beneficial to the plant body. Right. And so that's, that's sort of the definition of soil health. And there's mm -hmm. some practices that will affect carbon levels and exudate production mm -hmm. in plants. And so that, that's a part of soil health as well. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you use those practices to restore the life into the soil in your yard. Yeah, because here was the big villain in our story. Mm -hmm. When we demolished everything on the lot to put the garden in, it ended up being, you know, you just wonder, it's like, how do we get in this spot? Uh, even though it rains a lot in Seattle, our summers are hot and mm. dry. Mm -hmm. We ended up in, around the end of July, beginning of August, with all of these plants and, and getting them into the ground then. Oh, my And gosh. looking at our, yeah, this was a, a near disaster. Mm -hmm. Looking... Thinking back to that, we have pictures, and every time I see them, I just, I still cringe. The soil was cracked open. It was so dry. It was about, it was the color wow. of sort of like khaki, khaki pants mixed, yep. mixed with beach sand, mm -hmm. rocks. I mean, it was not great. And then on top of, you dig down anywhere from like 6, 8 to 10 inches, and then all of a sudden, the shovel hits this thing that's like concrete mm, mm -hmm. and it sends a zing up your arm because the shovels kind of rebounded out of the soil and yep. that is glacial till that uh, is this truly it's a it's a geologic deposit mm -hmm. uh in glaciated areas and it it's from the time when we had you know nearly a uh mile of ice sitting on top of seattle and you right. can imagine what that does that's a huge, huge compactor. So that was our situation. And that was the villain sort of in our story was, oh, my God, this lousy soil. How stupid could me, a biologist, and my husband, Dave, who's a, a geologist, we didn't really even check our soil out. I mean, not to any, any degree that, that we should have. And there was not much in the way of soil life. I mean, digging around, normally you see something, right. you know, moving around in the soil. We, did, we didn't see... We didn't see much. We, we saw nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have something here in Phoenix in the uh, air, low desert called Caliche, which is... Oh, Caliche, yeah. Yeah, really similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So what did you do to fix it? Yeah, well, 
you can relate to this then being in um, in the desert. It was paramount that all as we planted these plants that they get water, mm-hmm. and most of all, I wanted that water to stay in the soil. Yeah. And I I had gardened enough to know that okay, well, something on top of the soil, mulch, compost, mm-hmm. something on top of the soil is going to help retain the water. So that the rest of that month of August. I we had blown our budget on plants and so I you know there was no like buying massive quantities of compost or anything like that I I watered like crazy through August I managed to scrape up um certain some kinds of like free and cheap organic matter right and in Seattle one thing that we have a lot of is coffee grounds oh and I also managed to make friends with local arborists. So these are, you know, professional tree pruners. Mm-hmm. And a lot of trees chips? in Seattle. So, yeah, we got a chips. lot of wood yeah. chips. And I began mixing. So wood chips are a carbon source. Mm-hmm. The coffee grounds are a nitrogen, nitrogen. source. Yep. And you want those two things mixed together in any kind of compost or mulch. I didn't do a whole lot of, you know, scientific testing on this stuff. I had no time for that. And besides, I thought, this is good enough. This is what I have right now. This is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So I made up a mulch of coffee grounds and wood chips and put it everywhere, you know, around all of the plants. And then as I accumulated more organic matter, wood chips, coffee grounds, eventually that fall I got leaves off a neighbor's tree. Oh, right, of course. Mix that in, and I started yes. to fill in the places in between the plants mm-hmm. with mulch. And and over the years, I have just continued to do that. I lay, I have various kinds of mulch mixes. In fact, a neighbor and I have been absolutely giddy for the last month because we got the finest quality of free chips from arborists that we have ever had oh, in all of these nice. years that we've been doing this. Uh-huh. It's, it's a nice texture. It's not too small. It's not too big. Mm-hmm. There's not other undesirable things in there, tree, wood chips. And we got 10 yards, and oh, it was free. Nice. Yeah. yeah, completely free. So we've been just having uh, just a ball with, you know, he's mulching his garden and I'm mulching mine and mixing it up with all my other organic matter that I have laying around. And, and I just layer this on top of the beds around all the plants. Now, when I, we first put the garden in, it was really, I, I was layering a lot of this stuff, Greg. I was right. going probably four to six inches in height. Mm-hmm. And at least. I'll save, at least, yeah. And I'll save, let's just, listeners, Keep that four to six inches of mulch in mind because I'm going to come back to that later when Greg asked me a question about uh, something <laughs> that I failed at. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah, organic matter in mulch brought our soil back to life. Yeah. It is now um, – we did some carbon testing on our soil uh, about a year ago, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a sample – from behind the garage where, you know, I never did any mulching. There's nothing right. going on back there. That the carbon content back there was around 1% or 2%. And then we measured three other areas in the garden. And beneath the lawn, and when I say lawn, a lot of people are like, down with lawns. Well, our lawn is just a green thing to walk on. It's right. all very low-growing plants. It's, it's yarrow and clover and... Uh, a ryegrass that does good here in the northwest and some other herby forb type things. So our, our, our lawn was about 7 or 8% carbon right now. So this is after about 10, 15 years of continually adding various kinds of... Or- I don't mulch the lawn. That would kill it. But right. I, do, I, I do compost type treatments on the lawn. Mm-hmm. In the beds where there's shrubs, trees, and and uh, perennials, uh-huh. the carbon content there is somewhat lower, interesting, around 5 or 6%. And highest of all mm-hmm. is a veg garden within our larger garden. And in the veg bed, the carbon content was uh, around 12 or 13%. Mm-hmm. And that is in part because we have a short growing season here. And so when you put things in, it's like I'm very attuned to making sure that there's adequate organic matter in the veg garden. And so I've done, I've used my two favorite things for the veg garden in terms of organic matter Mm -hmm. are uh, biochar and worm, worm Worm compost. Yep. 
the finest compost on this planet is made by a worm's body. Isn't that amazing? In my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I love that. If I had more space, I would have more worms, more worms and more yep. worm compost. Yeah. But, really, alas, really I'm here, here in the middle of a city. <laughs> really important. Yeah, we actually use an extreme amount of wood chips in our yards here in the desert. So you're four to six inches. We suggest six to... 10 inches. And I actually have a friend, most of our listeners know him, uh, Jake Mace, and he's got three feet of wood chips in his backyard. Wow. Yeah. And he has turned his dirt desert backyard into a literal jungle simply by putting wood chips in place. Yeah. So there is another resource for, for everybody out there. It's called Get Chip Drop. Dot com. It's, a, uh, it's an app that connects arborists with gardeners to get free wood chips. Yeah, highly, I can highly recommend yeah. wood chips. Yeah, I love them. Really, really important. And, you know, especially if you're, you know, long-terming a garden, you know, you don't have to put gardening, gardens in right now. Wood chips is a great place to go to start the soil growth process. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I would totally agree. In fact, when we put our garden in, uh, anyone who, who's had a garden, you know, well, we're not quite sure about this area. What are we going to do? Uh-huh. Well, around here, if you leave any soil uncovered, some <laughs> plant is going to colonize it. Uh-huh. it just, that's just the way nature does things. Yeah. So it's like, well, we don't want that. That's what we just got rid of. <laughs> I also procured large pieces of cardboard from like appliance stores uh-huh. and that right. and then I no I pulled the tape off, I pulled the staples, I never took boxes with paint on them. Mm-hmm. And then I would put that down in an area and then I would pile wood chips on top, top of that of the cardboard. Yeah, why'd you do that? I did that because along the side of the house, this is maybe only about a three or four foot strip along one side of the house because the other side is all garden. Mm-hmm. And that was a side of house, the side of the house that is uh, adjoins a neighbor's driveway. And I wasn't going to be spending time over on this three-foot-long strip along the side of the house. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want weeds growing there. Yep. But there were at the time. And I'm uh-huh. like, I'm not going to spend my time weeding this stuff. I'm going to lay cardboard down. Yep. And then I'm going to put... And I actually put a lot of wood chips, probably to a depth of maybe 8 inches, right. 10 inches over there. Yeah. And then I let that sit for a year or two. And then I came back and I pushed wood chips aside just enough to get down to the cardboard, which was in some areas pretty well decayed, but not in all. Right. And I cut a little hole in the cardboard, took that out, and then I planted a plant in there mm-hmm. and left the cardboard down and then I just pulled the mulch, you know, up to the crown of the plant yep. and, and went on my way down that three foot long strip along the house and left it, left it there. I like cardboard for weed suppression. We, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because I, I hate this like landscape fabric cloth. Oh that, yeah. That don't use that in your yard guys. No, don't, don't use that. It, it, it it, it's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible stuff. I think it interferes with water. Anything that you put out there in the soil and it doesn't decompose or biodegrade, there's something wrong with it. Yeah. If the microbes are not eating it, first of all, it's not feeding the microbes. Mm-hmm. And second of all, it also could indicate, you know, something toxic that you don't even right. want anywhere in the garden. Anything anything that's on the soil, it needs to be either fe- needs to be feeding microbes. Right. Amen to that. So just just a caveat, you don't want to use wood chips in your garden soil where you're growing vegetables. Uh, And uh, quickly, why is that? Well, I I don't like wood chips on my veg bed because they take too long to break down Mm -hmm. over the growing season of my vegetables. Mm -hmm. I I also have heard, and I, I actually have not really followed up on this much, and I don't know if it's a myth or not, but wood chips require lots of nitrogen, nitrogen yes. to break down because they are a lot of carbon. Yep. And so yeah. there's, there's you know, information out there that says that nitrogen is going to come from the soil and it's going to go into breaking down wood chips instead of into a plant's green body. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Thank yeah, you for so that. Yeah, so I think that's... 
Yeah, I think that's a, something to keep in mind when you're growing annuals and you want maximum growth over a short amount of time. Around a tree, that's a whole different oh, yeah. kind of habitat Absolutely. and situation. And fungi in particular are really, um, they will, they're great decomposers of wood. So I oh, like yeah. to have wood chips for my mycorrhizal fungi that are attached to my tree roots. Yeah. I like them to have a, it's exactly. very, a diet as possible. Right. Yeah, and, and trees love that kind of soil. Yeah. So, so yeah. tell us tell us about the hidden half of nature, the microbial roots of life and health. Just give us a two minute. This is what it's about and why we should read it. So, all that I've been talking about before, there are bits and pieces of the, the hidden half of nature there, and the hidden half of nature is taking a look at the microbiome of the soil, mm -hmm. and it's taking a look at the microbiome of the human body and weaving these two stories together of what do each of these microbiomes do for their respective hosts, mm -hmm. i.e. a plant or a person, and why, why the things that the microbiome does are just so foundational to our health. Mm. I described some things that the root microbiome does, delivering growth-promoting hormones. There's also a ton of chemical signaling that goes on where microbes will tee a plant up for the uh, approach of a pathogen, say. Mm -hmm. Well, in our gut, we've got, here's a, a neat little factoid, we've got a bacterium called Bacteroides theta iota omicron, which is B theta for short. This little, uh -huh. this little bacterium has a genome that codes for over 260 enzymes that are capable of breaking down complex carbohydrates in our colon. So, Complex carbohydrate is really any kind of whole plant food. It right. hasn't been refined and broken down. It gets down there in the colon. B theta gets a hold of it. Munch, chow, munch, munch, crunch. Uh -huh. Great. <laughs> B theta then produces metabolites from those complex carbohydrates, one of which is called butyrate. Mm -hmm. Butyrate activates our immune system mm. in a very positive way. There's a lot of ailments related to fouled up inflammatory responses um, in, 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 in most Americans' bodies, most right. adult Americans, yeah. to say. It's at the root of many chronic diseases. B-theta tees up our immune system to activate a kind of an immune cell that is an anti-inflammatory cell, immune cell, mm -hmm. and it keeps inflammation at an appropriate level in our body, but it also lets it ramp up when we need it because you do need your immune system and you do need inflammation at certain times. Right. And so that, the, the, we talked about the rhizosphere in the plant body. The equivalent, the rhizosphere in the plant body is our colon mm -hmm. and our microbiome. And in fact, if you were to turn our digestive tract kind of inside out, it would be a lot like the rhizosphere of a plant. Because mm. you have all of these exchanges going on at the mucosal surface It's a bizarre. Yes, it's a biological <laughs> bazaar in our very bodies. Uh -huh. So this was just, so that's, the, the book is that, um, that's the science part of it. There's also a, a memoir part of it in that we tell this story through the things that happened that we saw in our garden and then also through a very personal health challenge that I encountered um, in the book it was about with cancer, and mm. so that made me ask a lot of questions about oh, yes. the health of the human body and where does that health come from. Yeah. And so, so that is the hidden half of nature is, is sort of those two intertwined stories, and we go into lots of fun things about um, Sir Albert Howard, for listeners who may, may or may not know about them, there's good stuff about him. He's sort of considered the father of organic agriculture, there's lots of cool history about some of these early microbiologists, people like Louis Pasteur, the French guy, and also Robert Koch, the German. And so it's, this, it's these dots that we lay out about how we first became aware of the microbial world, became aware of what it did, and how we're at this sort of new unfolding story because of what we're learning about microbiomes. And, yeah. and I will say this one thing. I microbiomes are the greatest unknown conservation project yeah. on this planet. Yeah. 
because when you're talking about the kind of health effects that a fouled up microbiome delivers to a human being or to a plant's green body, mm-hmm. we all of a sudden realize we truly are a part of nature and she's a part of yeah. us. I mean, I think that even for me, you know, who with my training in natural history and biology, I came to entirely new realizations about just how embedded mm-hmm. nature is in our bodies. And to me, that was really exciting, and, and it's an exciting part of yeah. the, the book as well. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Right. Okay. I love I love being able to talk about mulch multiple times uh-huh. in the podcast. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's where my failure came in. So, you know, the mulch maven, uh, I'm on an organic matter crusade in the early years of the garden, mm-hmm. and I just kept piling it up. And I piled it up so high around a couple of trees mm. that... I ended up killing the trees. Yeah. My beloved, I lost a Hinoki cypress. Mm. It's a beautiful tree uh, in the northwest. I lost a Hinoki cypress, and I think it probably also contributed to the demise of another tree called a forest pansy red bud, which mm. it's, it's a, listeners may be familiar with the red bud. This particular one had this gorgeous burgundy plum-colored leaves, you know, almost as could get almost as big as your face. It was a beautiful wow. tree. And what happened is, is I was, I was exceeding my, I was exceeding the capability of my microbial herds uh, to digest and decompose all of the organic matter that I was adding. So it was sort of like putting food on the dinner table and then putting more food and more mm. food. And then sooner or later, your dinner gets, guests are just, you know, stuffed. They can't eat anymore, and soon everyone's drowning in food. Yeah. So I, I smothered the root system. I think I smothered the root systems of these trees. Now, I knew enough. I'm not piling mulch up around, you know, right. clear up beyond the, the root flare of the tree. It's pulled back from the trunk, but I had, I had it too thick over the root system of, of the tree. Mm. That... It, that was my failure, and it was heartbreaking. And what did I learn from that? Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned earlier that my neighbor and I, we just got, you know, this great batch of wood chips about a month ago. Right. And so I am evaluating and analyzing as I put these wood chips out, um, okay, well, how deep is the mulch right now around this tree? How much do I need? Oh, this tree, wow, it's really, for whatever reason, the mulch has gone really quickly around this tree. Okay, I'm, I'm going to pile it up. These other trees, unfortunately, are street trees. I didn't know exactly. There, were, there was some confusion during the street tree planting project, let's just say that, about uh-huh. the proper height at which a tree should be uh, set. A few go. of them got set, got set too low. Mm-hmm. That'll do it. That'll do it, and so I'm, I'm very conscious about putting too much mulch on these street trees because they're already set a bit too low. Yeah. And so that is what I learned, is to evaluate, before I put more mulch down, how much is here already, and don't overdo it. And what do they and, need? Yeah. Yeah, don't, don't overdo it if you've got... I mean, it's just like our body, right? We've all got our quirks and our, our, our weak spots, and mm-hmm. so if it's like... I know, oh, that thing always aggravates my elbow. I don't go and do that. I figure out another way. And so, right. like, I've got these street, these street trees. Oh, they're set a little too low. So I'm really paying attention to the mulch level there. So that's, that, that's what I learned. I learned in a heartbreaking way. I mean, yeah. a tree is a long-lived being, oh, and it, God, it, yes. is, it is hard to see one go yeah. by yeah. your own actions. Right. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Well, and it's part of the learning process, unfortunately. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? I, I would say it started out kind of scary. You know, initially I mentioned that we had decided to demolish everything on our lot except the house. Mm-hmm. And that, that was so scary when we did that and uh-huh. we saw the state of our soil. And I thought, this is, sheesh, this, we're never, ever going to recover from this. And yet 
we got the plants in, and and by that fall, once I had you know scrambled enough, uh, scrambled enough to to bring enough organic matter in into the garden and start creating these mulches, I think my I learned then that the, a plant screen body knows what to do if you just give it the things that it needs. Mm-hmm. So do the water, feed the microbes, and stand back. Yeah. Don't be getting in there doing crap that you don't <laughs> need to do, okay? Uh-huh. And I, I think for long-lived plants, especially trees, I have been very successful at letting these trees do their thing. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I, I've become a very good and careful pruner of our mm-hmm. trees yes. because I've seen so many botched, and here in the Northwest we have a lot of trees, and I would say eight out of ten trees either a gardener or even an arborist or somebody perhaps calling themselves an arborist has gotten in and botched something. And yeah. that then sets a tree on a trajectory for mm-hmm. the rest of its life, which yes. is decades of ill health or bad looks. And so I am very, very mindful of my my pruning and what it is yeah. that that I'm doing and why I'm pruning. And really, you should never, if you're pruning to control the growth of a tree, that is, you probably never should have planted that tree. I I prune to guide the growth of a tree. I don't prune to control the growth. That is, Mm -hmm. that is folly. A tree will grow as big as it can based on the habitat that it's in. And Mm -hmm. like we had a bumper crop of rain this year and, everybody's trees have just exploded exploded yeah and it's like i'm not cutting that i'm I'm not no i'm not this is what the tree's body does Mm -hmm. this is what it's designed to do so i've become very good at at listening to my plants in particular the ones that are longer lived and and that is just simply because over the years of watching them they they just like people they all have their personalities and Uh i and and i know what they want to do and so I stand back and I and I let them do that. Yeah. 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 And so that takes some some patience and uh-huh. some the plant's eye view of the world. This right. plant knows exactly. what it's doing. Yeah. I'm exactly. getting out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> so what yeah. drives you? Well, I think it's it's my basic curiosity about how and why the natural world works the way it does. There are so many interesting things about biology, about our bodies, about nature, about ecology, that it's just sort of ceaseless fodder for my mind. <laughs> you know, I, I want to know, like, well, especially when we, we did all this research on the microbiome, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, my God, I cannot. This is just overexciting to know mm. what the microbial world does, and it's overwhelming sometimes to think about it. And I'm I'm very happy now that you know science and it's getting more and more out into the popular press as well. That that microbiomes are just so critical to right. our well-being and the way that the planet functions. So mm. I like to get um, I like to learn. A lot of things, and I especially like to learn, build on my base of knowledge about yeah. something I already, I already know mm. um, quite a bit about, and 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 I like it also when my thinking is challenged because, like on this mulch thing, right? I just thought, oh, more is better, more is better. Well, wait a minute, more in my case was not better because I killed right. some trees. So, yeah. it it becomes a way of sort of curiosity becomes a way to curate your gardening or farming practices into sort of, you know, menus and formats for what to do, what not to do. Yeah. That's what drives me in, in, yeah. in the garden. And I have to say, uh, I'm the kind of, of cook, too, who I'm never very good at just follow, not asking questions or just following recipes because I always want to know, well, why? Why are we putting this in this mm-hmm. dish? Right. And so quite often I'll end up, mostly because I don't, typically have like every single ingredient that some recipe calls for. So mm-hmm. 
I'm like, well, we're going to be substituting this for that. And <laughs> right, exactly. you know what? Most of the time, it turns out just fine. Yeah. I'm, and I will caveat that with there's a reason I'm not like a baker, okay? You need, <laughs> right, exactly. Baking is more like chemistry. Exact. Yeah. Soups and stews and other things like that, they're more like gardening. They're more like my mulch mixes. Yeah. And I have a, um, I have a saying, kind of a tagline that goes with the hidden half of nature mm-hmm. uh, that wouldn't, will not be surprising to your listeners, and it is mulch your soil inside and out. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Yeah. Well, a book that I was very influenced by, it must have been my second or third year in college, that I thought, oh, God, we're going to read that. How am I going to get through that book? (laughs) Well, that book was Charles Darwin's Mm. uh, The Origin of Species. Mm -hmm. And that was an absolute page-turner. Because if you have not read that book, it's likely that what you have in mind that that book is about is, oh, he's just going to talk about evolution. Well, that, that word is not used maybe but several times mm-hmm. in the book. What Charles Darwin did was he, talked about, he wrote about things like pigeons and dogs yep. and plants and his experiences aboard the HMS Beagle, this mm-hmm. ship that went down to South America, and he and others go traipsing off the the ship and are running around in the jungle and and so you're wondering you're wondering why is he telling us all of these all of these things that seem like they're so unrelated well just stick with the book because mm. it is the biggest grandest trail of breadcrumbs that you will ever read about mm-hmm. as a biologist it put so many things uh, into context for me. So that, that for me was a very influential book. And I still think as I'm doing things out in the garden, oh, yeah, this is, th- this is what's going on. This yeah. is what's going on here. This is the wrong place for this plant. It's uh-huh. never going to duke it out with that other one. Just pull it up now and take it out of its misery, yeah. you know. Yeah. So that book was very influential. I, I want to mention one other book that I read recently that I love, 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 both for its writing and its information. The Origin of Species, I will say, you know, it's got this, you know, he, he was writing in the uh, mid-1800s or right. so, and it's this flowery Victorian language. And if you're like a headline reader or a Twitter person, it's going to be different. And right. I, but I would advise you stick, stick with it. You're reading it for the ideas and the story and the argument, not really for the literature. Right. This other book, on the other hand, I, I love the way he wrote it. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees. It's by a, a German forester. Have you heard of it? I have not. Yeah, The Hidden Life of Trees. It, it came out, this turned out to be like a big runaway hit in Germany. Mm-hmm. And then um, the David Suzuki Foundation, which is sort of an environment, he's an mm-hmm. environmental oh, yes. um, dude, yeah, up in uh, Vancouver. Anyway, they brought it to the U.S. and published it. And you will never think about a tree the same way again after you read this book. It's a short little book. It's, it's just wonderful. I, I loved it. Loved it. And Cold. there's one that I have not read uh-huh. uh, that I'm very intrigued by, and it's called, and it's new, and I liked it because when I went to this person's somewhere, maybe it was on Twitter, blog, I, whatever it was, she said, gardeners, first thing to do, lay down the weapons. I'm like, I love her. Who is this? She, she's a, a gardener out of the southeast, and the title of that book is The Humane Gardener. You might check her out. Maybe she'd be good yeah. for your podcast. I don't know her, but I've kind of dipped into, we follow her on Twitter, and so I'm like, oh, I love, she's on this. She's all over it. Great. I'm on it. <laughs> I'm on it. Thanks. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I think as gardeners, uh, we often... We, we might often think, gardener, you know, urban farmers, gardeners, oh, if only I had, you know, if only I had here in the Northwest, we pine for sun. If only I had more sun on my mm-hmm. lawn. Maybe, maybe in Phoenix, oh, if only I had more organic, rich soil. Yep. And my advice is to get that kind of thinking, just that is a path to misery. Okay, <laughs> that is a 
that is a path to thinking about deficiencies and what's not working. I My advice is to do what you can with what you have at this time. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be the source of happiness because you are going to find some level or some way of being successful with whatever your gardening endeavor is. And so you know, maybe all you have is a little window box. Fine. Throw some petunias or pansies in there and watch them grow and yeah. take care of them, and it will be rewarding. And and I think back to when we put the garden in, and I'm like, crap, we have crap dirt, crap, crap, crap. Dirt, yeah. and, 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 oh, God, how are we in this you know, and what about and what about Mary's soil? I've seen her soil, and it's beautiful. <laughs> and right. that is a road to misery. People yep. do not do not go there. You, we are all capable of doing a lot with the organic matter that we have at our disposal. That's cheap and free, and feeding the microbes of our soil, whether it's window box container, garden, or farm, and letting the plants sort sort out what yeah. they are going to do with what you can give them. I, I love that piece of advice. Do with what you have, with what you got, or do with, right? That yeah. Do yeah. what. Yep. Do what you can with what, with you, what you have. Yeah. Perfect. At this moment. Perfect. 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 Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Anne. Yeah, it's been a blast. So, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, we have really easy. If you do a Google search on dig to grow, and so that's the number two, not the mm-hmm. word, mm-hmm. dig to grow. Uh, that'll take you to our website, digtogrow.com. We're on Twitter, at dig to grow, and at Facebook, we are dig to grow books. So that's, uh, that's how people can reach us. And we, we love to hear from readers and, and gardeners, and uh, I think Dave mentioned on his podcast, uh, the whole uh, topic of the podcast you did with him is mm-hmm. the new book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. Yep. So that's out. And like I said, we ended up sort of writing this trilogy. Growing a Revolution is the most recent one. Hidden Half of Nature is the middle one. And it all started back about 10 years ago with a book called Dirt. So <laughs> anyone who's into soil, the trilogy is out there. There you go. There you go. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash roots of life. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic, whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, There is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or I want to garden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. 
You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.